Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Focal Point, the IMV Imaging Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I am Laura and today I'm joined by Sam. Hi everybody. And the newest member of our team, we're excited to welcome Harriet. Hi, everyone. Um, we thought we'd maybe start by Harriet, yeah, if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, seeing as you're our newest member. Um, perfect. So I'm Harriet. Hello to everyone. I graduated in 2017 from Liverpool. I started off in mixed practice in North Wales, um, did an equine internship and for the past two years have been in small animal practice. So safe to say I've had a very broad range of experience in imaging and my interests mostly lie in ECC scanning and abdominal ultrasound. Fantastic. Thanks, Harriet. And it's great to have you on your first podcast with us. So um, last week, it was on the 23rd and 24th of September, uh, we attended the EVDI Annual Congress now, this year was a little different because it was the online meeting as a result of uh, COVID restrictions in the pandemic. And so we all attended from the comfort of our home workstations. Um, it was it was quite a fun event, actually. It was a virtual congress. So there was uh, the, uh, the, the usual sort of gathering area and you could go around the stands virtually, which was actually uh, quite nicely done. And there were two lecture streams um, in which there were both oral abstract presentations where the speakers reported their latest research projects, uh, papers and results, as well as a host of invited speakers. So it was a really good uh, couple of days. We didn't miss out on the poster presentations either because they were all made available online for our perusal. So we thought that this month we would share our highlights from that meeting with you for those of you who didn't or couldn't attend. So uh, let's kick off with Sam. What were your highlights from the meeting? Thanks, Laura. I, I attended in the loosest sense because I was actually a little bit out of the office at the time of the meeting um, doing some thoracic scanning on calves. But I managed to duck in for, for a small number of the presentations and see some bits of it. So certainly a diverse range of um, programmes that were available for everybody, looking at a diverse range of imaging topics as well. Um, so one of the things I found quite interesting, because I have a bit of an, uh, a personal interest in it, is that in um, ophthalmic scanning. So there was a session on... Um, the use of ophthalmic ultrasonography in horses, which was quite interesting from there. So I found that um, that meeting, that kind of presentation quite interesting. They gave a lot of really nice examples of different pathology um, pathologies in the equine eye and highlighted some of the different um, normal anatomical structures as well. I was most interested in viewing it from the point of view from of technique for ophthalmic ultrasound. And, and unfortunately, that's the bit of it that was probably done in the sort of in a very loose kind of quick way. So they didn't delve in deep into their technique other than sort of saying about how they placed the transducer um, through the eyelids. So they actually were doing it transcutaneously for viewing the structures in the equine eye, which was interesting because in small animal patients, dogs and cats, they place the transducer on the corneal surface itself. So they usually anaesthetize the corneal surface um, using a topical local anesthetic and um, typically something like proxy and then they usually actually place the transducer straight on 
to the corneal surface, whereas in horses they were doing it through the eyelid surface, um, but they didn't delve into the, te the um, technique exactly as how to move the transducers to view parts of the eye um, uh, to, to, uh, whilst using that transcutaneous technique. So it would have been good if they delved more into that, but the actual um, examples of pathology and examples of normal anatomy were really good. It would just be interesting to know what they did in terms of patient preparation for that, um, had they used a, a topical local anaesthetic um, for the eye, had they performed um, something like an auriculopalpebral nerve block to stop the horse um, blinking, what was the sedative combinations as well. I suspect they probably did all three of those things, um, but they didn't sort of mention those parts of it. But it was still really nice to see those examples. And, and what sort of stood out for me in comparison to small animal ophthalmic cases was just the different structure of the um, iris, especially because you have the um, uh, corpora nigrans on the equine iris, um, which can actually be seen very, very kind of obviously on an ultrasound exam. And, and they're of some, obviously a structure that doesn't exist in a, in a canine eye or a feline eye. So it was quite nice to see those examples and just to also sort of see people using ultrasound in that context, because I think ophthalmic ultrasound is something that has a huge amount of um, value and is actually relatively straightforward and safe to perform. So I think it's something that's probably a little bit underutilized in general by people in practice. Um, so that was quite an interesting, an interesting part of the meeting for for me certainly yeah I definitely agree with you it's such it's such a simple technique when when you think about it but I I don't come across many people who do it routinely for ophthalmic examinations and yet I think a lot of us find ophthalmic examination really quite difficult um there's quite an, an art and a skill to it as well as quite a lot of knowledge that needs to be borne in mind for doing these and so it's kind of surprising that perhaps we don't utilize it more yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's um, it's definitely one of those things that um, people could use more. I, I sometimes wonder whether people get a bit more uh, put off for it just for a kind of fear of causing damage um, with the transducer, um, because we all know that corneal um, layer is extremely thin. But in actuality, when it comes to small animals, especially, th there are contraindications where there has been severe corneal um, trauma or where there has been recent um, kind of a corneal surgery or intraocular surgery performed. There is a there are sort of contraindications for it, but it still has a use in a lot of a lot of cases, and it allows you to actually visualize many parts of the sort of globe and the retrobulbar space that that yet you can't see and, and potentially areas that you can't see even with an, an ophthalmoscope as well. So it definitely has its uses and I think people shouldn't be afraid to maybe to maybe try it or look into it because once you know the normal ultrasonographic appearance it can actually be very relatively I say relatively um, straightforward to pick up some types of changes within within different parts of the eye or, or around certain structures so it's a really really interesting area great session wasn't it lots of case examples yeah. lots of pictures <laughs> I um I did also attend some of the other equine uh, presentations. So these are the research abstract presentations that took place on Friday morning. Of course, one of going to be one of my highlights because uh, equine is definitely my area of interest primarily. Um, so one of them was uh, quite interesting. A group who used machine learning in order to determine 
how good artificial intelligence is at uh, marking locations, anatomical locations on radiographs. So the project was uh, determining whether deep learning can be used to detect the angle between the dorsal hoof wall and the distal phalanx border. And this is a multi-centre retrospective study and they uh, preset anatomical landmarks. And on the study x-rays, they were placed by humans or uh, the images. And then it was done by machine learning and the two were compared. So they compared it by determining the number of pixel errors, which of course depended very much on the uh, matrix size of the image. But they found in general there was an 87% agreement in uh, the placement of points on these anatomical areas. Um, I think it's quite an interesting study and it shows quite nicely how how machine learning can be used in everyday questions such as has this horse got laminitis it's something we're all quite familiar with doing you know eyeballing and then perhaps measuring the angle between the distal phalanx and the hoof wall but getting machine to use it I think hasn't been done before so it's quite interesting seeing this sort of uh, very advanced technology being applied to very everyday situations. Um, of course, there were quite a few limitations with this study. Um, for example, I think this relies heavily on uh, X-ray exposure and therefore image quality. And so I, I think, you know, e even though we're, we're potentially going to end up giving a lot of these measurements and interpretations to machines, how good they're going to be always comes back to how good we are as humans when it comes to um, acquiring the images themselves. So I think there's uh, there's still a lot of room for um, radiographers and radiologists to keep keep their jobs here. But it is, I think, quite interesting from a future of imaging perspective, because I know this has been used uh, a little bit more in human medicine compared with veterinary medicine. And there's some quite promising results with regards to X-ray interpretation. So there was a, a second one. Uh, they looked at uh, subchondral bone lesions in the proximal phalanx of sports horses. This was an MRI study. This, I think, was probably proving what we see quite commonly in MRI. So it looked at uh, the presence of um, sclerosis, uh, bone marrow lesions, or basically fluid-based bone pathology, and bone uh, resorptive lesions as well is, is what they classified the three abnormalities into. And this was a group of sport horses, all which underwent low field MRI. And they ended up with a collection of uh, 35 horses of which there were affected uh, control horses and also contralateral limbs. So ones with perhaps unilateral lameness or problems. And that was the comparative limb in those horses. So they were looking at the location and the severity of these changes. They found that there was sclerosis in all of the limbs of the horses. So that was um, 22 affected, 9 contralateral and 13 control limbs. But they did find that the bone marrow lesions and bone resorptive lesions were only detected in uh, the affected and contralateral limbs. So although they didn't look at this in a sort of temporal sense, I think it's quite interesting noting that... Uh, adaptive or changes such as sclerosis do occur in this instance in all of the horses and the distribution uh, was to be as expected we know that the majority of the weight and the force goes down the medial aspect of the limb and they found that the predilection site was the uh, the medial glenoid of the proximal phalanx 
They did also find that there was also sclerosis in combination with the bone marrow resorptive and bone marrow lesions that they described, um, which I think also indicates the potential for chronicity of these things. So again, the that um, continuum between adaptive, maladaptive change and then pathology. So it was quite, quite a nice little study. And again, lots of nice um, images to look at. There was one other uh, study which was quite interesting. Again, this was looking at advanced imaging and it was CT of the equine shoulder. Obviously, imaging the equine shoulder is quite difficult, um, often from both the radiological and ultrasound perspective, but certainly with regards to fitting this region in any bore of any magnet or CT core. But they, they managed to do it in... Uh, now, they used six horses, which were adults, four foals, two post-mortem limbs, and then three horses which had known shoulder-related lameness. And they managed to achieve it in all of these horses using a 90-centimetre large-bore CT. Um, and they did it by retracting the limbs in most horses. And some horses needed uh, the lower limb retracted and the upper limb uh, sort of taped up to its uh, thoracic, uh, or to, to its thorax um, inflection. But they managed to do it, although they did say that the average or the range of weights, at least for the lame horses, was, for example, 250 to 470 kilograms. So I think that's a point worth noting that perhaps we can't fit all horses in. Um, and of course, in they described the changes in the lame horses, which was, I mean, it was incredibly cool to see uh images of, of pathology in the shoulders of, of these horses because again it's something that just isn't really done but the pathology was quite advanced so there was uh, there was an osteochondrosis cyst in the um, in this uh, glenoid uh, cavity of the scapula of one horse um, and it had this quite extensive cartilage flap that sort of curled up and and um, sort of folded itself into the cyst uh, which was quite interesting. And they compared the images with uh, radiographs and also they did MRI. Um, the horse was uh, um, uh, was uh, euthanized in the end and went for post-mortem, which is why they ended up doing all this. But um, comparing the images and the ability to uh, see these, this cartilage defect and flap was quite interesting. You could see it slightly on the CT image, slightly more on the MRI, but again, both did underestimate it quite a lot when compared with post-mortem. And then they had another case with some huge uh, humeral and scapular defects, which may have been sort of osteochondrosis-like lesions, but they looked very advanced and very modelled. And then they had the third case, which had a very large fracture of the supraglenoid tubercle, which had obviously been there for quite some time. It was incredibly uh, remodelled. And um, of course, they, they did some very interesting 3D rendering. So I think from an image perspective, it was interesting to see them. From a practical perspective, I don't think any of these lame horses needed this. Um, and of course, I think uh, with regards to the usefulness of this in clinical cases, I think we need to determine whether it's those horses really that we think have shoulder issues and we, or, or lameness lo localised and pain in, in the shoulder region 
that we can't get a diagnosis from other modalities, those are the candidates that we want to ask the question, okay, what can we get from CT? Does it help us with our diagnosis, our prognosis and treatment? So not questions that were answered. Um, I think also there's a chance that perhaps some of the horses that were interested in shoulder pathology, are they going to be small ponies or are they going to be the larger, heavier sports horses? I would tend to think the latter, but uh, of course the former will um, sometimes occur. So it was it was interesting to see, and uh, it, was, it was some very nice images. But um, I think some some more thought needs to be put into whether this is actually applicable clinically. The um, it's it's interesting you mentioned the the CT. Just thinking back to the the um, ophthalmic imaging in one, they had some CT images of the kind of retrobulbar areas in um, in some horses, and I think they actually showed a picture of them taking it where they had a horse in dorsal recumbency with its head stuffed into the bore of a CT machine to kind of get these pictures. And it just highlighted the sort of the, the size of this sort of adult thoroughbred horse with its head in the machine is just how actually small the bores are compared to them and how impractical um, it is actually getting bits of horses into inside CT machines. Yeah, CT machines, MRI machines, getting getting the right part of the horse in the right part of the bore of either of those modalities is is hard. It takes a lot of pre-planning. So um, you need to you know intimately know the size and the shape of the of the bore, and you often end up going with a, a, a measuring tape and measuring the exact height height of the area that you want to to image and you know, the, the width of the chest, the length of the, of the forearm, just to work out if there's a chance. Because of course you don't want to end up in a situation where you've got a, a horse under GA, all the staff's there trying to get it in the right place in the magnet and you're unable to achieve it and it's been a, a waste of time. So there's quite a lot of pre-planning that needs to go into that. And of course, once you're in there, there's there's a lot of a lot of uh, manoeuvring that needs to be done to try and get it to work. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, I have seen some lovely CT images of um, sort of joints in uh, in younger horses in foals. Um, so you wonder if it's one of these things that um, could be a lot more practical for, for sort of neonatal cases and, and maybe whether that's something people will start doing more and more of in the, in the sort of future um, because obviously they don't have that size issue as much and it can provide more useful information there so something we might see more of going forward. Yeah absolutely and um, the nice thing about that is that often the more that we can compare images for example between CT and radiographs or ultrasound findings Actually, by doing that, often the what we can gain from X-rays and ultrasound actually increases, and so the need to go to advanced imaging actually conversely decreases the more that we're able to use it. So, it's um, very, very useful to have these modalities, not actually in a way just to uh, reduce the requirement for them by improving our abilities and other modalities. Well, I think I think we've covered the uh, equine side of the meeting quite well. So perhaps shall shall we go on to a bit of the small animal side of things? So perhaps those who uh, don't work with horses. 
Uh, Harriet, did you, did you go to many of the uh, small animal sessions? So I went to a few of the small animal sessions, but was particularly interested in post presentations as I am a person who likes visual things in front of your face. And I tried to stick to the most practical things that I would have found useful when in practice. And a particularly one was ultrasonographic measurements of prostate glands in neutered adult dogs. I was looking for a reference range for prostatic dimensions based on ultrasound in neutered dogs, which is currently lacking in veterinary literature. So um, this study uh, produced prostatic dimensions based on the dog's body weight and also whether there was a relationship between the subject's age and the prostatic dimensions, which there is a correlation between age and entire dog um, prostate sizes. So uh, as we know, diseases of the prostate are generally less common in neutered dogs uh, compared to entire dogs, except for the cases of neoplasia. Uh, within the study, it included 72 dogs, which were privately owned, a range of breeds and ages, were free of current or uh, past lower urogenital disease, and had all been castrated six weeks at least prior to, to the study and were all over 12 months age. So the dogs were grouped based on three weight, age, uh, weight-based categories, sorry, and uh, less than 10 kilos, 10 to 25, and over 25. So measurements of the prostate gland as, as we have in practice, were acquired in the longitudinal plane with maximum length along the urethral axis and then maximum depth um, with a measurement in the dorsal ventral dimension perpendicular to the urethra. All measurements were by one primary author. When having a look at the stats, it does seem that the, there is an actual significant difference between prostatic length and depth for all three different weight categories uh, with a p-value which approached zero for both variables therefore indicating statistical significance although the overlap between small and medium dog weight groups were seen um, it does show that there is statistical significance between the weight of a dog and the size of their prostate, regardless of their age, um, which is which is great. So when you're in practice, if you have got a reference range which you can actually refer to, it is so much easier than trying to use a, a the Atalan formula to try and see if you know your prostate is normal for that dog. So as in any cases when we're measuring things where there's a reference range that you can just easily refer to, it makes it much easier for you to decide whether your prostate is enlarged in these neutered dogs or whether actually it's normal for the size of that dog and its body weight. Um, for that reason, I was really interested in the study. Um, although, you know, there was only 72 dogs in the study, despite the different breeds and different ages, you know, it is a small sample size. It is only one small referral hospital which did the study. So there needs to be further investigations as to whether this is, you know, a broader range, uh, even though they did find statistical significance in this in this particular sample. But other than that, hopefully they can take it further and and we can actually have some published numbers as to what to refer to in the future when it comes to measuring prostates in, uh, in our neutered dogs. Yeah, I think um, studies like that are, um, are, are really interesting because they, having that initial reference for what's normal 
paves the way for for those um, other kind of very clinically useful reference ranges where people start to apply it to cases of pathology. And and it is quite common in ultrasound we get those there's always overlaps between benign changes and and potentially malignant ones. But it kind of paves the way for these other studies to to be done using those normals. And suddenly we have a bit of a we may have a reference range in the future for something that gives more of an indicator of of neoplasia. Um, and as well. So it's, it's very interesting and it's great that people continue to look at things like that just to kind of really, really get this information from the normal anatomy. No, absolutely. Because at the moment, there will be changes, you know, in ecogenic. Uh, in- in echogenicity, when you are, if you are scanning a prostate, you would hope to hope to see in cases of neoplasia. Obviously, to completely confirm it, you would have to take either a biopsy or a cytology sample. But if there is some size reference that we can refer to, it may just give you an idea to keep an eye on it and you know rescan in a few months' time to see if it's continuing to enlarge, despite you know no actual um, you know in structural changes within the prostate itself um, as well as your physical exam you know having a feel of the re- uh, of its prostate per rectum was there was there any present other presentations or posters you saw harriet that you thought were, were interesting um again sticking to uh, the practical route of clinical practice i did find one which i did actually question um so there was one study investigating the needle used for ultrasound guided aspirations and affecting on on spleens and uh, seeing what size needle would affect splenic specimen samples and pain induced in dogs on taking these samples. So the aim of the study was to assess the effect of needle size on on cytological specimens and also to evaluate pain induced by needle insertion. So obviously, well, we, we always recommend and generally I would always in practice sedate my animals um, for ultrasound and especially sedate them if I was going to take any FNAs or any true cut biopsies of any organs to reduce any stress or, you know, not not cause any distress to the animal or any harm. They did, they did, um, they did have a, a small sample size, so there's only 54 dogs, but they took three samples per dog, um, which is, is quite a lot. For, for, although you should always take multiple samples when you are assessing an organ, on a conscious animal, taking three samples per dog is quite a lot. So they they compared the use of 23, 25 and 27 gauge needles. And they did find that they had somebody completely separate, a vet who was in the room with the sonographer, blinded to the needle size and had been previously trained to detect pain and discomfort and report it numerically in a 0 to 10 rating for this purpose. Um, and they, they scaled, they, they based the scale on dog doesn't respond at all to aggression. And they did find that they, so they, used a randomized order using a non-aspirational technique. So with the spleen, we always tend to do a non-aspirational technique uh, where your needle is just guided into the target organ, incompletely retracted, and then redirected several times to try and shear off cells into your needle cylinder. The cytological samples were completely independently randomly assessed by um, cytologists, and they did find that the use of a 27 gauge needle was significantly associated with lower pain scores, which you would expect, you know, a thinner needle is probably going to be less painful than, than a thicker needle. However, obviously 
on the other hand, a 23-gauge needle did harvest a better cytological sample. With regards to the overall, they found that despite what needle size they used, 82.7% um, of their um, patients only scored between 0 and 1 on their pain score. And um, in, in relation to that, Although the 23-gauge needle scored the highest, they were very closely followed by using a 25-gauge needle, which when, in conclusion, when they were looking at it closer, they found that, you know, although the 23-gauge needle would produce, you know, a better cytological specimen, in, when um, compromising in relation to taking samples consciously, a 25-gauge needle would har harvest both a good enough sample to assess, you know, assess the cytology, and also produced minimum reaction when when taken. It is difficult, you know. We have there is, you know, there are a range of needle sizes which are recommended when taking samples from the spleen, but having very rarely would, you know, I very rarely personally would I take a conscious sample from a dog anyway, just because if the needle jumps. Uh, or the dog jumps and the needle it goes flying or you know you don't take the sample you need also looking at the study they didn't stand although they used a 23 25 and 27 gauge needle they didn't standardize their lengths of needles so looking at the photograph they took they had a one inch 23 gauge a 5 8 25 gauge and a one and a half inch 27 gauge so you know if they're using different ages and different size breeds and size of dogs how how kind of standardized is that with the samples they're getting from the spleen you know not all dogs are exactly the same if you're using you know different size needles um in length so that that is definitely a downfall of the study unfortunately yeah that's quite a variable with regards to both of their measured outcomes isn't it because length of needle you could think absolutely could alter the pain experienced by the patient but equally could definitely alter the quality of cytological sample so that's quite a significant um, limitation, isn't it? No, absolutely. So it's difficult, you know, we're all used to using those very small 25 gauge needles, um, you know, for, for exotics or, you know, sometimes in cats or vaccinating puppies. But how, how well that would be able to penetrate through, say, if you were taking a splenic sample from a lab, you know, a, an overweight Labrador, probably not. And as you're saying, it's quite it is quite nice to have a variety of different ways to, to learn and gather information. Um, obviously, whereas, you know, some people quite like sitting down for lectures and people talking at them and you know, essentially spoon feeding the information. Um, it's quite it's quite nice that you have to interact with the posters in, in a different way. And like you say, it's very visually visual. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And it means that you can just keep going back and referring to the information. I quite like that, that, you know, I'm one of those people that I don't absorb everything all in the one go. I have to keep doing the repetition and, you know, going through the abstract with a fine tooth comb to draw out all the information. I think that makes us human. <laughs> <laughs> but but I know I, I agree. That's one of the downfalls of presentation is sometimes you want a bit more time on one slide just to take things in and, and compute things and understand it a bit deeper so you're um that the timing of learning is is dictated by uh the, the person giving the lecture versus the the uh the learner absolutely 
Well, I think that uh, concludes our highlights of the meeting. Of course, there were definitely more uh, interesting and very applicable lectures and research items that we haven't mentioned. But we do hope that you, as our listeners, have got something out of this podcast and found our meeting highlights useful in some form. And if so, then please do let us know. The next conference that we'll be attending will be the London Vet Show, which is in November of this year. So uh, all being well, do tune in to episode nine for the highlights from that meeting from us. But before then, we will be back next month for another episode of Focal Point. But in the meantime, please do visit our website and social media platforms for lots more great content to help improve your imaging skills. So for now, it's gone by from all of us. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Bye from me.